podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. From the people who turned a niche Scottish football podcast into a critically acclaimed TV show on the BBC. It's Review from the Terrace, a pop culture podcast network. Hello and welcome to the Still Game podcast. My name is Bethany Tennick. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Rewatchable. Hello and welcome to Review from the Turnbuckle. Debating the best in movies, iconic TV shows, classic albums, peak era wrestling and so much more. Some intern got fired for that. Like, <laughs> be like, Jared! And what would you have done? <laughs> Loved it. What a moment. What a moment. Review from the Terrace brings together a collection of professionals, pals, misfits and special guest interviews. The one and only Ewan Angus, Big G Telfer, Director of Still Games, Michael Hines. That's Review from the Terrace, a newly created podcast network with at least two shows dropping every week. Hi neighbour, good to see you man, good to see you man, it's been a long time man. Many people will say it's the biggest moment in the history of wrestling. It's about 35. <laughs> Find us on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Chelsea. It's me, Andy Saunders, again. Uh, Kerry, you'll be pleased to know, uh, long-term listeners and regular listeners of the pod, you'll be pleased to know that Kerry had his operation last week and remarkably is already back at home. He had open-heart surgery. Um, and because he's uh, got the constitution of a lion, uh, he's back home at the moment recovering. Uh, so, Kerry, if you listen to this, we wish you all the very best. I'm sure all the listeners do as well. And looking forward forward to uh to having you back on the pod in due course uh joining me today uh to uh go through everything liverpool uh is gary hayes gary how are you i'm good andy thanks for having me back on just to say about kerry i think he's been a bit lazy i spoke to jackie she said he's sleeping all day well yeah. like, come on mate i know you should be up and walking around now get up mate get up and start <laughs> moving around jeez yeah. Um, and you're poorly, Gary, you tell me. Well, I have been feeling a little bit under the weather, yeah. I thought it was COVID, but it's probably man flu. You've just got a cold, haven't you? Yeah. I've had two tests. Okay, and they're both negative. negative. Yeah, well, then you haven't got COVID. So you need to man up and get on with it, take some Lemsip, and uh, and be a big, brave soldier. Where do you think you've got your cold from? Essex countryside, I'd say, from my holiday holiday last week. I went on a... um, a little family holiday with my brothers and their kids, okay. and um, and I think I must have picked it up there from the the Colchester Fun Pool or something like that. Colchester, I know it well. <laughs> I've got family on Mersey Island, which is just uh, just just yeah, just down the road. I used just, to work at the yacht club there when I was at university. Oh, yeah, we've had this conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, so they live there. It's actually a really interesting and a sort of little gem of a place, Mersey Island, isn't it? I, I yeah, it's like, lovely. I quite like it across the causeway. The same as Wiveno. Wiveno is a lovely little village. I used to live in it when I was at university, so we were staying around there. Just um, we used to go there as kids, so we had a little Chelsea holiday. We visited the um, on this site where we used to stay there was like this big like lake and river at the end of it a little stream so when we were younger we made a waterfall there and we called it chelsea falls there you go so we we took the kids there and it was still there and we're like oh look there's chelsea falls (laughs) and kids are like there's no wi-fi i hate this (laughs) yeah exactly that's that's it i'm like dad can i have my phone now please exactly 
So, did you watch the game at the weekend? I did, and I was I was impressed. And um, well, I just had to check because you obviously didn't bother watching the last time you were on. So, well, no, it was the Super Cup I didn't watch because I was busy. But um, but obviously, this is this is the football season for real now, isn't it? And yeah. um, this, this is when it matters, and especially against Liverpool because. Um, there's two clubs that I absolutely despise, and we've played both of them already this season. Arsenal, when we annihilated them, which you obviously did last week, mm. and uh, Liverpool. I, yeah. don't, I don't really care about Spurs, but these two, I absolutely hate them. So um, I'm with you. you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm exactly with you. I mean, the Spurs thing, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, it, it is. You get this kind of vicarious um, sort of dislike of Spurs in your DNA if you're a Chelsea fan, but I really dislike those two teams, particularly Liverpool. I mean, I've been very vocal about that um, on the pod in the past. So, listen, as you know, um, we're doing this slightly shortened version of the podcast, and we would normally do two parts, a review and a preview, but obviously it's an international break this coming weekend so there's nothing to preview so all you're going to get this week is a shortened pod uh, when I say shortened about 35-40 minutes so not too bad still decent value let's crack straight on Gary let's have if you don't mind a look at the teams any surprises in the lineup at Anfield no I thought it was sort of what you would expect wasn't it I, I, I do like that attacking three now with um with Lukaku and Havertz and Mount I know I forget who it was, but it may, it may have been the London is Blue boys. They put up a a, a picture before um, the Arsenal game, which was um, Mount Lukaku and Havertz, and they had Balak, Lampard, and Drogba. And I'm not saying it's like for like, but I do like that you know comparison because I think that this team now, where you know even under Lampard, we were talking about what the identity was, mm. and I think now you're starting to really see it. And I think that Tuchel's done a great job of, of bringing that around. But I just really like the attacking, that attacking trio up top, even though I'm an advocate for maybe dropping him out back. But I do like the way that looks. Uh, I mean, this idea of identity, we, we, have, we have spoken about the, the idea of identity. What, what do you think the identity of the team is now? What, in terms of the way they'd like to play? No, in terms of what, when people think of Chelsea, what do they think of? What you know? What's what's the personality? What's the what's the identity that we have now? Because we've discussed that we didn't really have one in recent years. You know, it was a far sort of churn of managers who never really imposed a, an identity on the team. I agree with you. I think we do have an identity. I'm just interested to know what you think it is. So when Havertz scored, I my one tweet from the game was, "This is a Chelsea team again." Mm. And when and when I say that, when I think of modern Chelsea. Um, obviously, we know the club existed pre-Roman, but I think of modern Chelsea under Roman. I think of Jose's first spell, 04 to 07, and this this is what that team feels like now. Mm. I think that you see it. They're resolute. They've got the ability to outplay teams when they want. I think they can play in different ways, but I just think there's a little bit of steel in there, which obviously we'll come on to with it going down to 10 men and the way they played with 10 men. I think in years gone by, under Sarri... Maybe under Conte, they would have lost that game. Under Lampard, we know that we went down to 10 men at home last year and we ended up losing against Liverpool. Um, I think there's just, there's just a bit more steel in the team. There's a bit more determination. There's a bit more ambition. And I think collectively, the players now, whereas in the past, we might have um, rued the fact that some of them didn't really quite get it, maybe, or didn't have the the application to, to understand what it meant to play for Chelsea. I think this team collectively does now. Kante and Jorginho is the double six in the middle. Uh, you've been vocal about Jorginho in the past. How, how do you think he started the season? And what did you think about him being named as the UA for Player of the Year? <laughs> have you been speaking to Kerry? No. <laughs> no. So Why, like... <laughs> has, has, have, you, have you been vocal about it to Kerry? Ke- Kerry messaged me and he said, Jorginho, UA for Player of the Year. And I said, yes, Kerry, um... 
it's like um, putting a bag of shit in the Tate Modern and people turning up and some people will think it's art and some people won't. And you think Jorginho's a bag of shit? <laughs> it was just an example to say about modern not a, art. Not, you know. not, yes, a little bit harsh, but I, I, harsh I, I, example. I don't, I don't think he's a bag of shit for the record. Um, do, do I think he was the UA for player of the year? Well, when Kante gets midfielder of the year and Jorginho gets player of the year, I think that's a little bit of uh, an oxymoron, right? Well, I, I guess you're looking at the Italian performance in 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 the Euros, aren't you? To add on top but, but of his club they give, performance, I, I don't understand how that award works. So are they giving it to him on club and international? Yeah, I, I, don't I think know. he's the UEFA Player of the Year. You know, the Euros is a UEFA competition, isn't it? Yeah, I, I always thought that because um, when I worked with UEFA before many moons ago, we did these awards, and um, it was always based on Champions League performances, but. You know, is he deserving of it when you take into what he did with Italy? Yeah, maybe. Um, does it make him the best player? Not necessarily. Just like Chelsea winning the Champions League doesn't make us the best team in Europe, right? Obviously, we, we want to think we are. I don't think necessarily we were last season. But him getting it, you, you can't argue with it because he's he's won the Super Cup. He's won the Champions League. He's won the um, he's won the the European Championship as well of Italy. But I think there's better players in that Chelsea team than him. Is he doing a job for Chelsea right now? Yeah, probably. I think this season, I've been more impressed with Kovacic, who I've been vocal of in my criticism of in the past. Um, but I don't think he's necessarily... You don't you don't look at Chelsea and think, Jorginho's in there, we're going to lose, right? Whereas in the past, you, you might look at other players and think, they're going to target him, we're going to lose, because that player's in the team. I just think Chelsea could do better. But then we're winning things, we're going to be title challenges this season. Do we really want to split hairs over whether you like a player or not? Mm. You you said the last time you were on that you didn't think Tuchel rated him. Do you have you do you still stand by that? No, I, I, I didn't say that. What I said is that I think that with Tuchel, I think that if he had a better option, he would go with it. Yeah, see, I still disagree with you. I think I think Jorginho's pivotal to the way that Tuchel plays the way he the way he recycles the ball in midfield and helps with the transition and, and all those things that Tuchel's been vocal about I, I, I think that I thought he was poor against Liverpool yeah I don't think he had a great game he was caught in possession a few times wasn't he um, but you know all the good stuff going forward he was at the heart of you know in terms of starting those moves you know so was he was he the strongest player defensively I don't think he was but then you know we know that's a weakness in his game but you know, Kovacic, Kovacic can can equally get caught in possession as well, can't he? He's not, you know, he's not somebody that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of Kovacic, and I'm not Jorginho's biggest fan. But then again, I'm not his biggest critic either. But I think what what Jorginho's good at, and I remember when we beat Arsenal at um, the Emirates under Lampard in 2019, I think it was, and Jorginho got the goal where Leno had flapped it, and he came round the back. I remember tweeting that game just like the stuff that I liked about Jorginho, which was the skullduggery. You know, I, I really liked the, in the way that he was inviting fouls on. I think that's what he's great at. And he did it in the second half where it was late on in the game and he had the ball and he just invited, I think it was Thiago fouled him and then it just eased all the pressure on the team and then we were able to get back up the field and Liverpool had to retreat a bit. I think he's great at stuff like that. I just think that moving forward with the evolution of this Chelsea team beyond the next six to 12 months, I think we want someone better in there if we are going to keep Kante in there. And if you, if Gilmore does come in to eventually be a Kante replacement in the long term, not necessarily like for like, but you know what I mean, right? That I think you need someone a bit more dynamic than Jorginho. But then if Chelsea carry on playing with him and play the football that we play with him, you can't really complain either. 
Talking about Kante, uh, another injury for him. Saw him go off and Kovacic come on after 45 minutes. That That is a concern, isn't it, with Kante? These niggling, ongoing knocks that he gets. He's on international duty, though. Mm. So is that injury as bad as they, they thought? I don't know. But then, you know, and just to bring it back to Kovacic, I just, I don't know, maybe it's wearing the number eight has inspired him, but he's looked all right this season. Yeah. I it's think they're all right. they're all on a bit of a, a high, aren't they? After the end of last season and the beginning of this season, they all seem to be pumped up, and motivated, and 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 playing with a bit of joie de, joie de vivre. Um, there does seem to be something about them going back to this idea of identity and personality, doesn't there? Yeah, I think so. I think that you know, and again to bring it back to Jorginho, there are aspects of his game that I appreciate that he does the stuff that maybe. Mason Mount and others, maybe they're a bit naive to do. Maybe it is stuff they don't like doing. And it's that shithousery, right, that we hate happening against us, but you love it when your player does it. We loved it when Costa did it. We loved it when Dennis Wise did it, right? You need someone in the squad to have that little bit about them. And I think he's the one player that's got it. Um, but I just think you look at them collectively... And I think when you look at the likes of Mount, even Havertz, you know, um, I think that the criticism of him last season was fair, but then equally it was unfair because of the reasons we said in the first podcast this season when you've got a young kid settling into a country where he can't go out and do anything because he's stuck under COVID rules. And I think that just but collectively, these players, they start, they're starting to look like men. You start seeing Mason Mount now. He he looks like, you know, you don't question him being in that team anymore. Whereas when he was first brought in, you were, there were question marks. As much as you wanted it, there were question marks, right? I think you're starting to see it with some of them now where they are looking like men. Yeah, you also forget the fact that Havertz actually had COVID quite badly, you know, and, and, and had to recover for, from that throughout the season. So, yeah, lot, lots of challenges for him in his first season, but I don't think anybody can argue that, that, that Havertz isn't, isn't an, a, a, a really good upgrade for this squad and, and playing extremely well. Still sticking with Alonso at the moment over Chilwell. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's, again, it's one that... He can't really. He has mentioned that you know that, that you know Chilwell hasn't played. He didn't play throughout the um, you know throughout the Euros. He didn't really play in that squad. So he's sort of bringing him back. Is there a fitness element to this? Do you think? Yeah, maybe. But then you can't really. Again, this this is where you get confused with Jorginho. It's the same with Alonso. You can't really complain. It's not like he's apart from when he. I, I don't know whether Mendy gave him the call or not for the goal. But apart from that header where he dispossessed Mendy and sort of got the ball back in the in the game for Liverpool ahead of the penalty that he didn't really do much wrong and I, I I've and I've always always been an advocate for Alonso going forward I've always thought and there, there was one point when we were chatting a couple of years ago um and I think I spoke to Rick about it where I just thought we were sh- uh, short in a in attacking on the left and I just thought why not play Alonso as the inside forward temporarily you know not as a long-term solution because I think he gets in really, really good attacking positions. And I think he is better in the final third than Chilwell. But I just think all around, he's all round game. I think Chilwell is better than him. I think he's he's more disciplined defensively. I think his positioning is better. I think he reads the game better. And I think he's happy to do that job. Whereas Alonso is an attacker in a, in a defender's body, I think. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And And in terms of the back three, Dave... Christensen and Rudiger, uh, you know, out of all of those, let's have a quick chat about Christensen. Has he put a foot wrong since he came back into the side on a regular basis? He just seems immense at the moment. He looks like the Christensen that we had up until Barcelona under Conte, doesn't he? Mm, he does. 
What's been the difference, do you think? Well, playing the back three certainly helps him because he's he's not isolated, is he? You, you know, in the way that we spoke about David Luiz under Conte when we played the same system, and I think that it covers some of the areas that aren't necessarily bad points about him, but they're areas that where he can get exposed. Whereas, you know, I think if he if he's coming up against a a burly forward or players that are trying to put him out of position, he can get exposed a little bit. Whereas I think in this position that he plays, he can be more of a footballer. You know, he allows Aspi and Rudiger, because Rudiger loves that physical side of the game anyway. So he allows them to take it off him where he's there reading and sweeping up. And I think he's great at it. So we start, I thought we started the game very well on the front foot. Um, we, we soaked up a li- you know, their, their initial five or ten minutes, you know, which they always do of their shock and all, heavy metal football, whatever they want to call it. Um, we soaked that up, it seemed fairly comfortably. Um, and I think... If we didn't boss the game, we were certainly, um, you know, very much in the game. The big match-up that everybody was talking about, of course, was Van Dijk and Lukaku. How did you feel that went in the first half? I think it went really well. I think Lukaku did well. There was a couple of times when he had the legs on Van Dijk and he pulled him out of position and got him behind him. And I think sometimes when people look at that, they look at maybe however many successful dribbles Lukaku may have had and they might see it that Van Dijk won it. But I think that what you see is the way Chelsea were, he was sucking Van Dijk out, which was allowing Havertz and Mount to get in. Because I think even when that, um, we were one nil up at the time, but even when Mount got in and he shot wide when he when really he should have scored, I think that would have killed the game had that happened. But I think you can see the Liverpool defence was pulled out of position because of Lukaku, because he had dropped deep when they wanted him to sort of be there on the edge of the 18-yard box rubbing shoulders with him. He was clever and he had pulled out that allowed those two to get in behind, right? Absolutely. I just think that... Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's an aspect of the game that doesn't get revealed in stats. No, I, I think agree. that's a game that you, that's something that you see by watching the game. So I think if you looked at pure stats, you'd probably think that Van Dijk won it because I think the stat after the game was that Lukaku had less touches than both goalkeepers. But I don't think that's reflective of the game that he played. I don't think it's reflective of, at all. And I think what we wanted to see was, you know, this was a matchup in physicality and guile, wasn't it? I thought Lukaku rolled him a couple of times. He certainly bullied him a couple of times. He beat him in the air a couple of times. I think it was, uh, you know, it wasn't. I think there, was, there wasn't a huge amount in it. But I, personally, I think Lukaku shaded it. But it wasn't Lukaku who got the goal. It was Havertz and a very clever goal at that, wasn't it? Do you think he meant it? Yes. Yeah, I've watched it a couple of times. I have to admit, it's a good question because, uh, you know, at first I just thought he's knocking that back into the box to see, you know, if anybody gets on the end of it. I, I've looked at it a few times and from the particularly from behind the goal, that angle, I think it looks like he was, you know, trying to put it somewhere towards the goal at least. Yeah, it felt like a set piece they'd worked on in training, right? Where the yeah. ball, it sort of gets that, um, the second phase of the set piece. But I don't really care, it went in, right? But I just think, you know, whether he meant it or not, yeah, he went in, who cares? But, um, there, there is a really interesting stat, and I, I can't pull it up, and I don't know what it is. Um, but there is an interesting stat about how near post corners are more effective than corners that go into the, you know, in inverted commas mixer, because the flick on creates chaos. So there is an argument to say that it was worked on. He was flicking it on, but I think the way he sort of angled his head, I just think that's that was that was meant. I thought it was brilliant, but um, yeah, no chance for Allison and, and one nil after twenty two minutes, and we saw. Pretty much saw the half out comfortably until the 48th minute, three minutes into injury time, when uh, Rhys James handled the ball on the line. What was your take on the penalty and resulting red card? Well, initial reaction was 
it's not a penalty and it shouldn't be a red card because it hits his thigh and then comes up to hit his hand. I think that the way he moves his hand at the end, sort of, you can look at it either way that he was sweeping it, but I think that's a natural reaction that the ball's hit his hand, so he's moved. I did say to my brother who I was watching it with, when before it had been given, when James ran away, he looked to the bench and he sort of pursed his lips and shook his head a bit as if to say, mm, I'm not sure. Um, so I think even he knew, but then when you see the rule book as it comes up, which they brought up on Match of the Day, that the rules are the rules, yeah. and that was a penalty, and it was a red card. So you don't think you don't think it was a penalty? I think that it shouldn't be a penalty, but the rules. If it had been Liverpool, would you have been screaming at the telly? That's the test. I'm trying. I'm trying to think. See, that's the way I look at it, right? If it had been Liverpool, I would have been absolutely screaming for a penalty because he's blocked. A, he's blocked a clear goal-scoring opportunity with his arm. Yeah, but. And this this is the issue, right? Is that did he make a move towards the ball with his arm? If I don't think he did, right? And and this is where it comes into it. The rule book though is that if that happened where he's in the box and Mane had crossed it and that happened, it'd be play on. Yeah, but it's not. He's not denying a clear goal scoring opportunity at that but, point. But, is but it? the rules are there that say if that happens, no matter how the ball touches his hand, it's a penalty, right? Because mm-hmm. he's on the goal line, and therefore it leads to. A red card as well, right? Because there's no double jeopardy on a handball. There's only double jeopardy. Doesn't apply to a handball. No, and that's the thing. And I was surprised that so many people didn't know that rule and were going, well, hang on a minute. What about double jeopardy? Well, you know, have a look at the rule book. I, 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 I hold my hand up. I didn't know that either. Yeah, but you're not a professional pundit. And, um, you know, and, and quite a few of them didn't seem to know the rule. And it, that happens quite a lot, doesn't it, when you're watching it and people. Well, it's interesting because I think you see Tuchel's interview after the game. I think it was on Match of the Day that he said then. Um, I don't know what the rule is, so I can't really... I don't know if he was just trying to avoid any controversy and being clever or whether he was genuinely saying, I don't I quite know what I it is. I can't believe that. Can you, Gary? I can. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, I think so, yeah. because I think that the referees are the ones who are the pedants when it comes to the rules, right? And we look at things sort of with common sense, but well, they, they look they at what's apply the rules. Right. I mean, if that's yeah. pedantry, fair enough, but I mean, they, they're applying the rules. But, but that, that, that's what I mean, is that they will, they will understand the game in a completely different way to what we do as fans or former players, and we, we, we like to talk about common sense, but the referees talk about, well, the rules are the rules. Mm. And I just think that in the end, and th- this is what, I'm not, I wouldn't say disappointed, but this is the bit where I'm a little bit concerned because much has been made about Anthony Taylor. And there was a couple of things where, you know, Salah kicked the ball away where he could have got booked and Fabinho should have got booked really for persistent fouling and Liverpool got away with no yellow cards in the game. But I think generally speaking, I don't think he had a bad game. And I know that's an unpopular opinion. No, no I agree to- with you. I don't think he had a bad game at all. There was a lot of controversy about the fact that he made the decision based on a still image rather than a moving image, you know, on the screen. Did you did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, but and then and this is where I think referees need a little bit more help, is that we don't know what's being said into his ear. Mm. So he's, he's gone up and just seen it. It might be that he's saying, you're coming up now, Anthony, and I'm going to pause it for you so you can see it. Yeah. Because it's on a loop, right? And then when he gets there, it pauses. And then he goes away. Yeah. And he's there for like two or three seconds, right? Mm. So you you don't know what's going on in his ear. Now, obviously, fans in the stadium can't hear that. But I think in other sports, and I know this is football, it's not every other sport. But in other sports, you hear the communication between the referee and the video uh, referee. And I think maybe that would help with the understanding of how that decision came to be. But I think talking about the referee generally... There's been a lot of vitriol towards him 
and may, maybe I'm an idiot and don't don't see things that other people do, but I'm just like, I think the guy needs a bit of a break where fans are calling for him never to officiate a Chelsea game again. And I'm like, come on, we're, we're not Liverpool, come on. Let's have a bit more class than that. I, I agree, I agree. Okay, let's take a quick break uh, for some adverts and we'll come back and we'll talk about our rear guard action. And we're back. Uh, Andy Saunders and Gary Hayes here on the Chelsea podcast. Uh, second half uh, of the uh, Liverpool-Chelsea game at Anfield. Down to 10 men. Off goes Kai Havertz, the goal scorer. On comes Thiago Silva. Rudiger, Christensen uh, and uh, Azpilicueta and Silva um, all uh, forming uh, a, a pretty impressive uh, back four. And so it proved throughout the game that was quite something, that rear guard action, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really impressive. And just to go back to what we were saying at the at the top of the show, really, is that you can see that that there's more them they're more resolute now. That maybe that comes with understanding, having played together a bit more. But I think Tuchel's done great stuff since he came in immediately, where he made us tight at the back. And I think that's why the double six works as well, right? Because it gives that midfield the you know when you think about the Arsenal game and you talk about how their back, you know, their back four just wasn't protected, and we were just cutting right through them every time. And you look at what happened to Arsenal against City as well. I was watching it on on Saturday, with my brother, and we were just laughing about how bad it was. And you know, it, it was the same problems that they had against against us. And then you look at this Chelsea team, and I think the de- the, the defense was great, but then I think. Kovacic and Jorginho did do enough in, in front of them as well to protect them. That's right, because obviously uh, Kante had gone off. Uh, also at half-time, Kovacic had come on. Um, and so we had two new players on the pitch. Uh, and we still created a, the occasional opportunity, didn't we? I mean, Lukaku was incredibly isolated uh, with, on, with only 10 men. Um, but we still managed to get up the pitch on occasions and, and score. It really does make you wonder what would have happened with 11 men on the pitch. Oh, I think 11 men on the pitch, we win that game. Mm. I, I, I don't, don't disagree think, with that at all. I think penalty or not, I think we win that game. Liverpool, Klopp knows he got off one. Mm. I think that and losing that game psychologically would have been a big thing because it would have shown that Liverpool had their moment, what, 12, 18 months ago and now we've caught up with them. And we've over- I think we've overtaken. I think we're a better team. We're a better squad. Klopp said there was no advantage playing 10 men. Well, I think he would say that, wouldn't he? Because he wants to get out of the fact that they didn't win. <laughs> Apart from the obvious advantage of having an extra man. <laughs> yeah. you know. I sort of know what he means about whether well, they're, they're going to put 10 men behind the ball and we have to break them down. But you'd think a team like Liverpool that pride themselves on, you know, on, on the ability to move the ball quickly, skillful players, ball players, flair players, you'd think they'd back themselves to break us down and, and frankly I was sitting there with my son watching it saying this is going to be a heartbreaker this is going to be you know 80, 89th minute winner isn't it it's, it's going to happen someone's going to break through the uh, break through the mass rank Salah or Mane is going to do something and uh, it's going to happen but it didn't we managed to to hold out and, and, and actually I got sort of less worried the more it went on which seems a bit weird but, but, but towards the end I was thinking they're not going to score here no and I think that when, when you say about them backing themselves I think this says a lot about Tuchel's Chelsea is that you noticed how early on, within like the first five minutes of the second half, they were just smacking them from 35 yards out. Like Van Dijk had that effort, Fabinho had one, Andy Robertson had one. 
Um, I think Salah may have tried a really long-range effort. I think that was sort of like, we need to do something now, otherwise we're not going to get anything. And they were just seeing any opening and they were going for it. When you see a team do that, it smacks to me of a team that's either run out of ideas or a team that's not confident they're going to break someone down. And we've seen Chelsea do it in the past where we've been really frustrated. And that's when you hear the the moans from the crowd of like, shoot or forward. Mm. And, and I think that was happening with Liverpool. That I think that this Chelsea side, for right or wrong, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not in Klopp's mind. But I think they were agitated real quick where they knew that they needed to get something rather than just being patient. And I think that when they're hitting long-range efforts like that, they're, it's hit and hope. And they were sort of like just trying to get almost a smash and grab at home. How good was Thiago Silva? Oh, he's great. He's just, again, it comes out to experience, doesn't it? Mm. I think you just see, maybe that's helped Christensen as well in training. Must have done, mustn't it? And it, even as a, as a mentor, it, it must have done. To see somebody, you know, that much experience coming in, still playing, I mean, he still plays with passion, he still plays with enthusiasm. He's not like a lot of the mercenaries that we've had in the past. You get the sense that he's bought into the project, that he's part of the the fabric of the team, and that, you know, that he still has things he wants to prove and, and play. I'm, I love the guy. I think he's a, been a huge asset since he came to the club. Feels like a, a JT and Desai relationship, really, and I know yeah. Terry played with... Desai, he only played actual 90 minutes with him, you know, consistently. And Christensen and Thiago Silva don't necessarily do that because they're in the same position. But mm. I think that certainly on the training ground, I can imagine Silva doing extra work with him where they're almost like dirty dancing together, pacing alongside, stepping in and out of positions and mm. getting positioning right and, you know, talking about how games develop. And because I think you can see the way Christensen reads the game, I think he's got better. Now, whether that's just coming with age and maturity or whether it's because he's got someone like Christensen around him, uh, sorry, uh, Silver around him. But I just think generally he he just looks more mature as a player. I think what's interesting as well, and what I noticed with, with Christensen and Thiago Silva, it allows Rudiger to be Rudiger. You get the sense that Rudiger loves these situations. He actually enjoys these backs to the wall, in the trenches, muck and bullet situations where it's all kind of last gasp and it's all, you know, let, let's kind of hold out. He loves it. You know, he's the one that's going to be barnstorming and running around, throwing himself in front of balls whereas uh, Silver and Christensen are going to be more intelligent about the positioning and more intelligent about uh, and perhaps more considered and more measured with the way they play. So it kind of plays to everybody's strengths when they're in the team. Yeah, I, I like the balance of that as well mm. because, and to talk of Chelsea of old, not to compare like for like, but just to talk about how when our defence has been good, it's had that balance because I think even to go back to the late 90s when you had Desai and LeBeuf, LeBerf was maybe more of that Rudiger figure and Desai was more of the intelligent guy, even though LeBerf wanted to be Desai. Yeah. You know? And then you you look at when it came about with JT and Carvalho. Carvalho would be Christensen in this example. Yeah. And JT, obviously a much better version of Rudiger, but and there's a lot more to his game. But he, he was the one that was diving with his head at the player's feet to stop the goal. Yeah. Whereas you know, Carvalho is the one getting the ball, bringing it out starting you know, moves. I think that when Chelsea had been at their best, or any team, but obviously we're talking Chelsea, is that you have that balance. You don't want too much of the same thing. An honourable mention as well for Edouard Mendy, uh, UEFA Goalkeeper of the Year. Uh, who had a really good game, I think. I mean, he's, he, his saving, his saves were very good. His marshalling of the defence was very good. I really like the position he was taking up from the in-swinging corner from Liverpool's left, where he was almost on the edge of his six-yard area. 
did you notice that he was in a really interesting position he, he didn't stay on his line and it seemed to work really well they didn't really trub, trouble us from those set pieces I, I just like aggressive goalkeeping like mm. that because if you're on your line you're really restricted as to yeah. what can happen and I just think that how often does it come to be that a keeper gets beaten at their near post from a corner because they weren't on their line I just think that it's intelligent. Do you, do you trust Mendy now? One hundred percent is you know I, I I have to say when he first came in I wasn't wasn't sure didn't know whether he was an elite goalkeeper. I think now I trust him one hundred percent. Yeah, I I I um I think that for a keeper to come out of nowhere in the way that he did, I think people that follow global football, European football on a level that I don't would have probably known about him, but I didn't know much about no, him. No, I didn't either. I didn't. Um, I think that it's great scouting from Czech. I think he's how he came about him, whether it's because it was his old club or what, but I think it was a good move. I think it just shows that if you're trying to do the right things in a transfer market, you don't need to be breaking, you know, world record fees to do it. I think that he's very assured, isn't he? And, you know, there might be things about his game that he can pick out and, again, split hairs over, but I think overall he hasn't really done much wrong, has he? No. He hasn't. And I think he's in the sort of privileged position that in some ways Peter Cech was in that he's got a very, very good defence in front of him, uh, which will always make him look good. Um, but I think it's when the Co- same defence that Kepper had, though. Well, yes, sort of. Yes, perhaps better drilled and, 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 and better positioned um, and with more confidence. I think he's, he's not as erratic, is he? I think that's, that's the one thing about him is that Kepper, maybe it's because his confidence went. And I remember when... Kepa was getting a lot of abuse and I just thought, you know, I remember tweeting at the time saying I'd like to see, before we completely kill Kepa, I'd just like to see him with a defence in front of him. Mm. But then you fast forward a year or so and you look at what Mendy's done, I think he's complimented defence, the defence and the defence has complimented him. There's a chemistry there that works, isn't there, that, that perhaps yeah. there wasn't with, with Kepa, no, I agree with that. Um Okay, just finishing up, I just want to have a little bit of a chat about transfer deadline day. Uh, we don't normally talk about transfers, but it is transfer deadline day today, 11pm tonight here in the UK. Um, a couple of interesting possibilities floating around. Uh, the Sornigues uh, deal apparently is back on at the time of uh, broadcasting, which is uh, 5 o'clock um, on Tuesday evening. So by the time you listen to this, that might be dead. But it was on, it was off, it was on, it was off, and now it appears to be on again. Have you heard anything about that? What, have I heard anything in terms of it's going to happen? Yeah, or not going to happen. Is Have you got any intelligence from your former days? That's completely not my bag. Transfer okay. Transfer rumours is not anything I've ever touched, fortunately, because oh, well, I, I don't good. know how anyone does it. I think when you see the meltdown on social media, I'm just like, wow, I'm glad I never had to deal with that. But um, in terms of him as a player, though, yeah, be an amazing signing. Would, would, is signing. he the player that you want instead of Jorginho? I'd love to see him in Kante, yeah, definitely. He would, okay. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's see what happens with that then. The other one, of course, is Jules Kunde uh, from Sevilla. That one looks like it might go right down to the wire. Uh, there seems to be some brinkmanship going on over the fee. Um, we've just talked about how amazing our defence is and what great options were in there. Do we need him? Depends on Chaloba, doesn't it, really, whether he can he can keep his form for the season. I'd like to think that Chaloba would. But then again, I know as I'm talking, I'm talking as a fan and I'm not talking with my head. I'm talking more with my heart. But I I think when you've seen some of the moves that have happened this summer, Chelsea have raised a lot of good money, which obviously paid for Lukaku, 
where we're actually, um, you know, our, our net spend, as people like to speak, is like, was it like 35 million or something, including the, the, the transfer of, of Lukaku. So we've, we've got rid of a lot of deadwood. My concern is, is that we start bringing these other players in where you look and you think, would Kunde give us more than we're going to get from the likes of Chaloba? Not because Chaloba's any better than him, but in terms of the minutes. And I think, it, I, I, I always believe that any club should build their squad around their home grown products. Um, and that's not to say that you do it all cost, but I mean, you do it where, you know, bit part players, why spend 60, 70 million on someone when you've got someone there who's perfectly capable of doing what they should. And my point, the one I always bring up is 2016 with, um, with Batshuayi and Tammy, the, the amount of minutes that Batshuayi played that season and the goals that he scored, despite scoring that winner against West Brom that won us the league. Um, he didn't give us anything more for 30 million than you would have expected from an 18, 19 year old kid. Mm. So you just look and you think bringing another defender in, is he going to play the minutes that there's an that element, he should of, there's an element of hindsight about that though, isn't there? But I, I just think though, for the minutes you're expecting Kunde to play, is, is, I think if he was going to be a starter, they would have had him at the club already. Is there an argument to say that Thiago Silva's only got perhaps one more season? So you need to be building for the future, and perhaps he is one for the future? Yeah, but then if, if that's the case, why are they going to rush it through and pay over the odds on transfer deadline day? Because maybe they won't get him next season. Maybe he leaves Maybe he leaves on a free, and we don't get him, and somebody else does. I'd, yeah, I'd, m- maybe that's part of it, but I just think that I think any club, they, they need to have long-term planning in, in what they're trying to achieve. So do they want to pay over the odds? They've clearly got a figure in their mind of what they see Kunde being worth. Now, it's not as if he's a you know one in a million player, right? That you know, a generational talent, as people like to throw around these days. It's not like we're, we're going for a Havertz or we're going for Messi or someone where you're like, we'll break the bank to get them no matter what. They're going for a player who there's other defenders like him. So if you lose him, then you identify another guy in the next year and bring him in instead. I don't think that it's a case of you lose Kunde now and it means you can't get him in January or next summer, so you're losing something major. I just mm. think, look, they, sh- they should be more... We- we've seen the club get in this position before. You know, you look at the Drinkwater and Bakayoko going, everyone's celebrating that Drinkwater's at Reading now and Bakayoko's at AC Milan, but think of the money that has been spent to get them there. You know, well, the other one, of course, is Ross Barkley, who's who's linked with Burnley. He's not coming back, is he? And who hasn't got a squad other... number, is he? Well, no, and there's a, there's a few others as well, as you say, Deadwood. Um, you know, players that, that that threaten much and delivered little. I mean, the one player that might be staying is Ruben Loftus Cheek. Do you see any kind of role for him this season? Again, are you, are you asking? <laughs> well, I'm asking. You know, as a, a, both as a fan and, a, and as, 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 as somebody fan... that's kind of followed the club for many years, do you see a role for him this year? I mean, that's a pretty packed midfield. Yeah, it just, it's, as a fan. I'd love to see it, but talking practically, he's just going to be there to make the numbers up at training, isn't he? Which is a shame because I love Ruben to bits and, you know, working in and around the club for so long, I got to know him a little bit and I know what he's like. I know what he thinks of the club. I think he's the sort of player as a personality that you want at Chelsea because they're the players that keep that... You know, I, I don't know whether I put too much emphasis on it because I talk to some people and they think they look at me weird, but I just think it's all about culture. And I think that the beating heart of a club is the culture of it and you need players there that really bring that about, right? And I think that you see it in Aspi. Obviously, when he signed for us in 2012, he didn't know anything about it, but then you see him talking recently where he's saying about being a captain at Chelsea. John Terry showed me what it meant 
to wear the armband to show, show me what it meant to be a Chelsea player. And I think that when you have more players like that around the club, obviously Aspi now is one of them, but when you've got those young players that have been at the club since they were eight, they're the ones that are the beating heart of the club as well, you know, not necessarily because they're scoring the goals that win titles, but they're there keeping that tradition going. And when you look through elsewhere in a club like Joe Edwards, he's still part of the coaching staff. It keeps the beating heart of Chelsea mm. what it is. We're not just mercenaries. We're not just let's buy stuff, let's buy stuff. There's a Chelsea element to it. So I'd love to see Loftus-Cheek stay, but I don't think he will be playing. But equally, he hasn't done enough on loan at Fulham last year to show no. that he should be playing either. So, currently second in the table after three games. Uh, tricky couple of weeks coming up. We've obviously got the international break this weekend, which will uh, put a pause on things. But then we're back on the 11th of September for the 5.30 game uh, at home against Aston Villa. Followed pretty swiftly afterwards, three days later, with uh, a home game against Zenit St. Petersburg in our first game of the Champion League group stages. Um, and then Tottenham on the 19th, Villa on the 21st, Man City on the 25th, and Juventus on the 29th. That's a pretty busy January. September. Mm. Uh, did I say January? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. R- eh? r- wrong transfer window. Wrong, wrong transfer window. Yeah, a very busy uh, September uh, coming up. So the next month, essentially, uh, you know, a lot of games, a lot of, you know, potentially very tricky games. So um, we're going to need a squad, aren't we? We're going to need a squad. I think we've got a good squad, regardless of what happens on the transfer window. And I think... Really, we should, because we have Southampton on the back of City on the 2nd of October. Yeah. And just sort of trying to bookend it with international breaks. My prediction is that we will go unbeaten in all competitions into the next international break. Wow. Big, bold claim. Uh, Listen, one that I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, Let's hope it's true. Uh, We're certainly in fine form. Um, If we can keep 10 players on the pitch, there's no reason why we can't compete at the very highest level in some of these very tricky games. Gary, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, We won't be here next week because of the international break, but we'll see you uh, after the uh, Aston Villa game um, on uh, Saturday, 11th of September. Enjoy yourselves and come on the blues. This is a playback media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at chelseapodcast.net. Sports Social Podcast Network.